millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello, this is Better Than Yesterday. Better make it quick. It's the Wednesday edition of the show called Better Than Yesterday, which is here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. Something you hear on this show and every show is guaranteed to do just that. Make your day-to-day better than yesterday. I'm Oshie Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster, author, TV host, and uh, currently uh, hosting a live comedy show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and soon to be the Sydney International Comedy Festival. It's absolutely great. It's going great. Thanks to everyone that's been coming along it's wild because sometimes people that listen to the podcast don't watch the TV I work on. Sometimes people that don't watch the TV I work on don't know or even I have a podcast or yes, neither of those people sometimes know that I have a live show. It's an interesting country, Australia. You're expected to stay in your lane, but I prefer to swim sideways across the whole pool. So it's been an interesting time and it's been fucking super fun. So if you have a chance to come to one of the last Melbourne shows, there's only a few left. Uh, I'd love to see you there. Come and say hey. If you can come to some of the Sydney shows, come and say hey. We are on from the 3rd of May at the Comedy Festival there. Uh, We are, however, today going back to 2016 on this episode because there's hundreds of episodes of this show and some of them are worth a second listen. And in 2016 on Ep 154, we spoke with Dr. Jennifer Rayner, who's worked as a federal political advisor and international youth ambassador in Indonesia and a private sector consultant. She's got a PhD from ANU and she came on the show in 2016 when she published published Generation Less, How Australia is Cheating the Young. Yeah, it's not a chirpy title, but it's important to talk about. So I wanted to know who did Jen write the book for? For young people or for older people so they can learn how to perhaps help younger generations? I think it was a couple of things. So I'm quite fortunate in that I have been exposed to people in in all of those different categories. And so my former husband is about 10 years older than me. So he was leaving school and looking for work during that early 90s recession, which would have been the same time as you talking about, you know, trying to get into a workforce at a time when businesses were just shedding workers left, right and centre. There was just for young people, it was a really particularly difficult time. And then, so me being about 10 years younger and, you know, um, coming of age in the middle of the mining boom when things were 
they were going pretty well. Everybody gets a big screen TV. Well, that was the thing. It, it, things were going very well across <laughs> yeah. the economy, but it was still yeah, yeah. really hard for yeah. young people. It was still really hard for younger people to, to find work and then to get the progression through the workforce that we were looking for. And that's one of the areas where I really started thinking about it was putting his experiences and mine side by side and saying, okay, but there was a huge recession on when you were having all of those problems. Today, our economy is supposedly going really well, but young people are still struggling with those same problems that you faced back then. Something's not right because things should be better now if the economy is, you know, recovered and is in a better state. And then also I would say um, being a parent now and having a five-year-old, I look at what he's got ahead of him and I really worry about that and I worry about where the trends that are affecting my generation now, if they're completely left unchecked, what that means for people like him. My eldest brother works uh, in the executive at um, uh, one of the big universities up in in Queensland Mm. and you know, I remember when I worked at Channel V, we'd always get this email at the start of every year going, just by the way, people who are turning 18 this year, you know, this is the era they were born and we'd all start. I was 27. I think, wow, I'm really old. And now I'm 42. <laughs> um, so even more so. But he uses, uh, you know, one of my other brothers who works, just just an idea of like this gap, and I'm, it might illustrate it. One of my other brothers works in the automotive industry. He was this massive car show and he um, was sitting with the journalists and he said there was all these guys who were in their mid-50s taking notes with uh, a pen and paper, shorthand. (laughs) And then there were these kids, 2022, with iPhones, Mm. but no one in between. Mm. And uh, my oldest brother used the word, he goes, ah, that's stop and prop. That's um, <laughs> that's these journos who just like will not ever get out of the way. Yeah. And is, is that one of the problems facing facing the workforce today and facing young people trying to get in? Yeah. So, I mean, the workforce is actually a real cluster for young people at the moment in a range of different ways. And Did you I'm, mean to say clusterfuck? Well, I wasn't going to say that on the okay. radio, no, but sure. If you want to say that on your <laughs> podcast, totally it's fine. totally up There's to you. There's a swear joke. <laughs> she, Gigi wasn't supposed to be home from school today. It's all right. When my guests swear, I get to pay in the swear joke. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I'll remember that for later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So really, I mean, young people are facing a couple of different problems. One is, to begin with, it's quite hard to get in and to find a job that is secure enough to start with. Um, When my parents were leaving school in kind of 1978 and looking for work, there were all of these jobs which were entry level and didn't require a lot of skill but were pretty secure and paid reasonably well. So for blokes, it was on a factory line or an abattoir or something like that. For women, it was doing, you know, clerical secretariat work. And you could get those jobs and you could get into the organisation organization and you could work your way up and be paid while you were doing it. There, and get, was, there was training as there you went. Was, uh, that's right. And there was yeah. training. So on the manufacturing line, you might start off just welding one socket every day, but then you would gradually, you know, learn how to put other parts of the car together. And then you might rise to be a, a line supervisor and then eventually a manager. And you could sort of see how your career would map out. Those jobs are gone. They, they have just disappeared from the economy because of things like automation and offshoring and that sort of thing. And so now young people are trying to find work and where they can find it is in these much less secure kind of casual jobs. So hospitality, retail, nannying, nail bars, those kind of jobs. And part of the problem with that is, A, that they're not very well paid because they are low skill and so pretty much anyone can do them and therefore there's no um, no really need for those workers to be well paid. Uh, but then also it's hard to get enough work because they are so casual. And so back when my parents were looking for work, about one in 30 young people said they were underemployed. Today the number's one in six. So one in six young people actually can't get enough hours to put together, you know, a, a decent living. Um, and, and this is not even, we're, t- we're just talking roof over your head, food in the fridge, internet, 
maybe seeing your friends once a week. We're that's not even right. talking savings or super. No, and that, that's absolutely right. And so then one of the reasons that uh, it's getting particularly difficult for young people as well then is that the wages that they have are just not keeping pace with the cost of other things rising. Um, so wages have grown by about $220. Uh, sorry, go back just to remember the numbers. I think it's uh, wages have grown by $600 uh, a week for people who are in their late 50s between the 90s and today, but they've only grown by about $200 for younger people. So older people's wages have taken off like a rocket. Younger people's wages are pretty much standing still. But as we know, the price of things like housing, uh, even you know um, transport accommodation, all of those things is, is skyrocketing as well. What that then creates uh, is a situation where young people are sort of starting out not very well off and then as they look to progress through life they're not able to do the things which we sort of took for granted in previous generations like save a deposit for a house get promoted uh in particular i talk in the book about this idea of the gray ceiling which is what your brother has observed there that there's all these people who got into good jobs in their 40s and 50s but they're going to stay in the workforce for another 20 years and why would they go anywhere they're great jobs they're very happy with those jobs uh, and we want older people to stay in the workforce because, you know, if they're healthy and, and well and contributing, then of course they should do that. But there's not been enough attention paid to what happens to all of the young people that are in the pipeline then and kind of can't go anywhere because there's no opportunities for them to progress too. It's not hard to look around to see this, you know. It's not like mm. we're talking about something that is, isn't re- represented in any, everyone knows someone who's got a either a friend or someone's son who's like 28 and living at home mm. all right, and everyone's made a joke about it mm. or every, everyone knows someone who, oh, I remember them, they were great, but then they moved to, you know, Emu Plains or something, <laughs> you know, which is a, a suburb really like it's on the bottom of the Blue Mountains. Yep. It's about an hour and 15 minutes when there's no traffic mm. out of Sydney and then the jobs they have are in Sydney and it's, it's very, very tough. It's not like, you know, when you... I mean, I've got friends that have parents that live in the inner west of, of Sydney, which is now, you know, Boomtown, mm-hmm. but they bought it when they were 24 out of high school with two kids, mm-hmm. you know, on these jobs that you were talking about. And those opportunities just just aren't there. No, that's right. And I mean, one of the things that sort of compelled me to write the book is that I kept having these conversations exactly of the type that you've described there of someone saying, oh man, you know, I'm just, I'm about to turn 25 and I still can't get anything except bar work. Or, you know, I would really love to be able to put a housing deposit together, but every time I nearly get there, the price of housing takes off again. And I just, you know, my deposit just is ne- never seems to be enough. Or as you say, you know, a friend who you haven't seen for months because they had to move so far out of town or to an- another place entirely to try and get a job. And I actually realised that I'd been having those conversations with people my age for, you know, five or six years now and more and more of them adding up. And it just really occurred to me that this is not something that's unique to, you know, my particular set of friends. Actually, this is a problem that's happening right across the Australian community. So how do we get here? Why are we in this situation? Is it because people fail to look ahead? And plan to the future? I think really what's happened is that things were so good for so long that people have assumed they will continue to be good forever. So Australia's um, GDP per capita, which is, you know, how much of our national income each of us has as a share, has just about doubled over the course of my lifetime. Australia has become incredibly rich and 
in previous generations, that wealth was pretty evenly distributed across the community because we have always had both a strong social safety net and then just generally a, a more egalitarian distribution um, of wealth and of resources in this country. And when we took our eye off policies and structures that supported that, the natural tendency of, uh, of these things is for them to start accruing into a smaller and smaller share of hands. And I think probably what we haven't done over the last 10, 15 years in particular is think about how younger people are being affected by policy planning that we're doing for the older generation. So everybody's very, very concerned that we're going to have, you know, all of these older people who are going to live much longer than they ever have. There's a lot more of them in the community because we had that baby boom group moving through. And so we've spent a lot of time planning for what do we do about all these old people? How do we pay for their health care? How do we make sure that, you know, um, we encourage them to save for their retirement so, as you say, they're not reliant on the system? But what we've done in doing that is that we've set up, for example, tax policies which really favour older people and really disadvantage younger people and negative gearing um, capital gains tax is an example of that because it really encourages um, people to invest in property so that they have wealth behind them, but that investment means that younger people can't get into the market. And similarly, you know, we're looking at healthcare and how we pay for that for older people. We're taking the money for that out of the university budget, which means that it's really young people that are paying the price. And this is a, a word that get you love to hear it. People love to say it, I should say. People love to say intergenerational theft. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so scary. <laughs> I mean, I talk more in the book about intergenerational inequality. Mm. So I think we need to design policies and, and look at the way stuff is divided up in the economy to say, okay, what's fair? And what's fair is not necessarily everybody having the same stuff. What I see as intergenerational equity is people having the same opportunities to build stable and secure lives. And there's really just a couple of building blocks for that. It's having a good job. It's being able to grow some wealth. And in Australia and a lot of other countries, that's often owning a home so that you can start uh, building wealth throughout your lifetime. Uh, it's being able to get either an education or a trade or something that supports you to have uh, work throughout your life. And it's being part of a community that supports you through, you know, the, the various vicissitudes of life. And younger Australians are losing the opportunity to have all of those things. And then as a result of that, you know, we have less actual wealth and less actual opportunity. Um, but I think the focus needs to be on how we go back to getting young people the same opportunities to build those stable and secure lives. If, if there's one thing I have noticed a bit, and I do, I work on radio now in, in Brisbane and people get, if I ever stand or even just put one foot on a soapbox and start talking <laughs> at all about any kind of, um, uh, you know, human rights for refugees or, or, for example, climate change or energy policy, people are like, oh, shut up, it's boring. <laughs> I remember as a kid, people, I grew up, um, like I said, I'm older than you, so I grew up uh, um, with, you know, worldwide um, attention being on French nuclear testing in the Pacific, on mm. the Franklin River Dam project down in, and, and environmentalism um, being a huge deal mm. and people were really, really, and like front page all the time. It seems now that if you're like 20, 22, you're like, I'm busy playing Pokemon Go. I'm like... And this is a thing. People bash millennials and white generation Y quite mm. a bit. Uh, but 
it's hard to ignore that there is this sense of apathy. Is that because people are just given up because they just feel they can't make a difference? I don't think that's fair, actually. I think um, one of the reasons that there's been this real decline in um, university campus activism, for example, so everybody knows in the 60s and 70s, you know, when my parents were at uni, universities were this absolute hotbed of political activism and there would be protests and there would be, you know, people chaining themselves to things and it was like a real hotspot for activism. And you go onto a university campus these days and, you know, it's pretty quiet. There might be some people, you know, reading under the trees, but there's not, you just don't see that kind of activism going on. Um, that's because the students aren't at university. They're working a full-time job to try and pay for their cost of living while they're at university. So what's actually happened, I think, is that young people are under so much pressure everywhere else. We're under so much pressure to try and work two jobs in order to put together a living because one won't do it anymore. We are commuting because we live so far away from, you know, where we work or where we study. Uh, we are trying to um, find a way to be part of our communities through, you know, local activism and that sort of thing. So this idea that young people are apathetic, I think, is slightly unfair because we just actually don't have the leisure that people in previous generations had to really get involved in right. that sort of stuff. We need to take a break uh, to pay some bills to pay the actual people, uh, some of them younger than me, uh, that work on the, all of them younger than me, that work on this show. <laughs> Back in a sec with Jen Rayner. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even though I had Dr. Jen Rayner on this show in 2016, it feels more relevant than ever today in 2023. What are some things I wondered that we can do to improve the outlook for young people in our country? The meta issue, the, the one thing that people can do is just get involved somehow and find whatever small lever by which they can make their voices heard and then use that. I think in terms of addressing the systemic issues that I talk about in the book, and really those are how we get young people into quality work and keep them there throughout their careers, how we allow young people to build wealth over their lifetimes and how we support them to have meaningful, you know, engagement with their communities and with each other. There are some really practical things that we should be doing about that in a public policy sense, but none of those things will happen unless more young people are getting involved in the processes. So just to run through what a couple of those solutions I think probably are, um, we talk a lot about channeling young people into university and, you know, if you get a university degree, by and large, you will do quite well, although it is breaking down now. Maybe sometimes you need two degrees rather than one to get the job that you used to need one degree for. Um, that's sort of a separate issue. But there's about 60% of young people who don't go to university in Australia at the moment and we don't do anywhere near enough to make sure that they get good skills for good jobs. Um, so whether it's an apprenticeship, whether it's a trade certificate, whether it's going to TAFE, we need to think more about how those young 
young people can get the skills they need and then maintain those skills to stay in work over their lifetimes. Um, we also, I think, personally, um, should have more of a focus on young people starting their own businesses because when you have this pipeline problem of all older people having the good jobs and young people butting their heads up against it, one way to get around that is to actually just go out on your own and create your own opportunities. But things like financing are a real problem for young people because if you don't own a house, you haven't got anything to borrow against, bank won't lend you money, you just can't start a business. It's pretty much as simple as that. So looking at ways that you might finance uh, young people with their businesses and income contingent loans and things like that is another opportunity. Um, and then, you know, really practical things like rent uh, laws and how we treat renting in a, in a country. If people can't afford to buy houses, they're going to be renting for another 20 years. At the moment, I think we all know how shitty it is to be a renter and your landlord comes through at any time and says, take that down off the walls and you've chipped the paint so you owe us half your bond and all that sort of thing. In other countries like Germany, they have a much more pro-tenant approach, which means that even if you are renting, you can still actually have a home and have it feel like you, you know, you're part of that community and you belong there. So those are the practical solutions, but like I say, none of those things can happen unless you've got people engaging with the system to make them happen because the institutions that we have in front of us are dominated by older people and therefore they are also dominated by the interests of older people. And until you get more young people coming through the pipeline, both the formal political pipeline and then also just the general, you know, engagement in the community, none of that stuff's going to change. Is the way to change things, though, is that system capable of moving fast enough? Because we are, there's some things that we do have a bit of time on, there's some things we really do not have any time on, mm. uh, you know, energy policy being mm -hmm. one of them. Is the system capable of changing fast enough or do we need something from outside of that system to change it? Because if you're, uh, you know, an old white dude and they're all pretty much all old white dudes um, who's best mates with, a, you know, a mining company uh, who's, you know, the mining company paid for all their, um, you know, campaigns, you're going to make decisions that, you know, favour those people or the people that you know or the people you've always known. Um, so you're barely ever going to make any decisions that, you know, favour something that might be good for the whole community is certainly when it comes to clean energy is the way to around that to start something completely on the outside of it is the way around that through some sort of you know corporate you know move or something like that or someone creating some sort of ngo within mm. the country oh look i think the with big problems like you know clean energy policy or employment or any of kind of the really big challenges we have in front of us we need to tackle them from lots of different fronts i mean my personal perspective as someone who has worked in politics and it's kind of it's what i know obviously the political channels are the ones that i kind of tend to focus on but yeah absolutely people starting ngos people um pushing from the outside all of that works because it all brings together a focus on issues which haven't had enough attention up till now. But I mean, you look at an issue like climate change and, and energy policy, it seems like a crisis now, but it's, it's a crisis because we have spent 10 years sort of stuffing around on what the solutions might be. And one of the things that's really valuable about younger people is that we have a long-term perspective. We have a long time horizon. And you saw that in the um, British vote on uh, Brexit younger people voted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU, older people voted overwhelmingly to get out because older people had this quite short time horizon in front of them, which was, you know, do I feel like in the next 10 years things will be better or worse if Britain is in the EU? And they decided that it didn't. Whereas younger people were thinking, okay, 20, 30, 40 years from now, how are our interests best served? Obviously, they're served by being part of a broader global community. And so that longer time horizon, I think, is really useful in public policy and just generally. 
And so having more young people, whether it's, like you say, NGOs on the outside, um, people getting involved in politics on the inside, bringing that perspective to the conversation is so useful. But you, we, we have a system that is, what have I heard the term of phrase? Nimto, not in my term of office. <laughs> There's so many projects. Like if there is one country in the world could benefit from high-speed rail, it's bloody this one. <laughs> but it's never, ever, ever going to happen because it'll get finished when someone else is in power. And for that reason, you know, many other reasons, but for one, that's one of the reasons that people won't commit to it. How do we get around that sort of thing? Well, the other good thing about young people is that we're very optimistic. And, uh, you know, I think some of these projects and some of these problems need a bit of optimism brought to them, a little bit of um, big sky thinking. And I just think generally that's what young people bring to a conversation is is not a sense of, oh, we've been over this issue a hundred times before and it didn't happen that time, so it can't happen this time. Uh, a fresh perspective and an optimism about what's possible are two things that young people bring. If this conversation has somehow piqued your interest in such things, you can read Dr. Jen Rayner's book, Generation Less. You can also scroll back to episode 154 to hear the full conversation. Thanks for listening. Um, really appreciate it. Please tell your friends if you enjoyed it or if you got something out of this. Thank you to Bree Steele, who produced this episode. Thank you to Andy Ma, who did audio and video post. Rachel Barrett for being the executive producer of everything. And you for listening. Please tell your friends. Please hug someone that you love. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.